Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on Backstage Babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today I am so thrilled to announce my episode with double EGOT winning songwriter Bobby Lopez. He is the composer and lyricist of the Broadway musicals The Book of Mormon and Avenue Q, as well as the stage adaptation of his hit movie Frozen. And his myriad screen projects include the new series Up Here, Central Park on Apple TV, WandaVision, Coco, and Frozen 2. And now, without further ado, here's Bobby Lopez. Right. So I would love to begin by asking you, how did you first become interested in theater? How did I first become interested in theater? Well, I was, um, as a kid, I, as a boy, I, uh, you know, I loved pretend games um, and never really got interested in uh, team sports of any kind. So when I was about seven, um, I sort of realized I didn't fit in with the other boys in my neighborhood. I didn't want to play football. I didn't want to kind of talk stuff about each other's moms. I just didn't like that whole scene. And um, I, what I did end up doing was take piano lessons and, um, and I started to get interested in music and continue my fantasy, you know, pretend game life in the arts. Um, so that was something I, I was always that kind of kid. Um, and, uh, I, um, we were lucky enough to have a piano. We had a, we were subletting an apartment, um, and my parents got me lessons in the neighborhood where I lived, which was Greenwich Village. And, um, I, I started taking lessons with this, uh, this man, Bennett Lerner, who's a, a really accomplished pianist and a disciple of Copeland. He was, he played all these Copeland pieces and he knew Aaron Copeland and he, he encouraged me to write little pieces. Um, from from the very beginning. So, you know, when I was six years old, he said, make up a little poem and then write, make up a, make up notes to go with the words and write the notes on the page. And I remember just thinking that was such a lot of stuff to be asked to do. And I wasn't sure that I could even, I could even do it. I was like, aren't I a little too young to do that? <laughs> um, but, you know, he was like, you can do it. You know, he, he was like, he was very serious. But actually, the, the, the second week I came in and I had made up the tune, but I hadn't written it down. And he was like, where are the notes? <laughs> um, so I, uh, I had to, you know, I, they were all backwards by the time I brought, brought it in. But my, that first song of mine was called Oy Vey, What a Day. And it seemed to be about a, a, a Jewish farmer uh, because it, was a, it's, it was, had something about the crops in it. Um, even though I'm not Jewish, I'm, I'm Filipino. Um, so, you know, that's where I started to get my interest in writing. I always kind of assumed that I could because this, this, this influential teacher told me that I could. Um, in theater, um, you know, my dad, we were doing, in, in, I went to Hunter Elementary School as well. Did you go there? Yes, I did. Yes. All right, right, <laughs> right on, right on. Uh, so we had this wonderful um, um, theater and music teacher, Barbara Ames, 
who kind of took over the school. She, she began in my fifth grade year, and that was the year she decided to do West Side Story as the fifth and sixth grade musical production in the spring. And basically, I, I, my, my father, uh, we rented the, the, the tape on VCR, on VHS, and I just fell in love with West Side Story. I just thought it was the greatest thing ever. I played Snowboy, one of the Jets, and I really, I got the bug then. And uh, that, that was my, then I wanted to be a, an actor. Uh, the next year, the, the, the show was Fiddler on the Roof, and I tried out for Tevia and hoped that I would, hoped against hope that I would get Tevia, but I didn't get it. I, I was cast as the constable, and, I, and um, my mother said, well, gee, Bobby, if you can't even get Tevia in sixth grade, what chance do you have as an actor? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but after I sort of picked myself up off the floor, um, Barbara Ames said, what do you think? You want to write the constable a song? I was playing the constable. Uh -huh. And uh, and I said, I can't write a song for Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> I'm in sixth grade. Um, uh, so I didn't. She wrote me a song. <laughs> but the next year, I went into a different drama group who again said, do you want to write a song uh, for this original show we're putting on? And I wrote the opening number. And um, it was a uh, it be it's it really um, it took off from there. That was the moment. I guess I was by that point in eighth grade, and um, I knew what I wanted to do. And looking back to that to that point in time, who do you think were some of the biggest influences on your songwriting? Be they in musical theater or out of it? Or sure, um, uh, Billy Joel was was one a huge influence. I think a lot of guys my age who write for the theater were big Billy Joel heads. I know Jason Robert Brown was, and, um, I think uh, I think Andrew Lippa and Benjamin Justin um, really liked that stuff. Anyway, um, I loved Billy Joel. And uh, in another life, I would have liked to be Billy Joel. Um, but Stephen Sondheim was the other one. Once I um, I was a, you know, a huge West Side Story fan, and then I guess a couple of years later, my dad turned on uh, Follies in Concert on PBS. It was, um, I think it was 1987, 86, something like that. And I just, I remember seeing Maddie Patinkin, Maddie Patinkin singing um, The God, Why Don't You Love Me, I'll Do See You Later Blues. And I was just, my jaw was on the floor that something that smart and that adult could be a musical. Um, and it was really, it was really, you know, that's when I, that's when I started to put together OG Maybe I should have written that song for Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> um, and, and next year I'll write one if I can. And when you started to think about college and all of that, did you know that you would always want to be both a composer and a lyricist, or did you think that you might want to pick one? Or I um, from from a from an early age, from that uh, that age that I that I learned that Stephen Sondheim was a thing. <laughs> uh, I wanted to be a composer lyricist, and I always wrote songs all by myself in high school and college, um, which was something that I, you know, I sort of um, discarded later. I really enjoy, I found that I enjoyed working with other people a lot more and that the, the pressure of doing it all yourself, of sitting alone in a room in the end was a little too much for, for me. I, I just, it, it, it got to be a lot. I was, you know, we were, we were not a, a wealthy family. Um, and my parents were super, super supportive of my being in the arts, 
but they also encouraged me from an early age to think practically and to try to figure out a way to um, to earn money doing what I loved. But I I couldn't for the life of me figure out how. <laughs> um, I I would write these musicals. I wrote one a year, maybe it was two a year from eighth grade to 12th grade. And then I wrote one a year in college and not a penny. <laughs> there was just, there was just no, no interest whatsoever. No, you know, um, no clues of how that, that, that would ever happen. So um, I think, I think part of it was the pressure of that feeling like, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can, it began to be, writing began to be, become not fun for me. Uh, as a as a solo writer, and you know, you start to feel the weight of the world on your shoulder. And that was around the time that I joined what's known as the BMI Musical Theater Workshop, which is a uh, a program in in New York um, that uh, many people have come out of. Alan Menken and Ed Kleban from Chorus Line. Um, Lynn Aronson, Stephen Flaherty, Michael John Lacusa, just wonderful, wonderful writers have come out of it. And what it is, is it's a, it's a class. It's, it's barely a class. It's really a forum to present your work. Some, they teach you a little bit about, you know, what's an I want song and what's a charm song and the 32 bar structure and, uh, and, you know, what, what tends to work. And, um, but that's not really the point of it. The point of it is, meeting people your age who are your peers and your uh, people in your field that share um, share interests. It's really, I met the generation, the next generation of writers in my first year class. It was me and Jeff Marks and Tom Kitt and Brian Yorkie and um, Amanda Green and um, Tom Miser and Curtis Moore who write now for uh, um, marvelous Mrs. Maisel, just wonderful writers. Like, and we were all just kids in this class together. And honestly, it was hearing their work. It was being able to present my work to an audience every week. And through that, discover who I was, who I really was as a writer. I can, I can tell you now in hindsight that all of my stuff in high school and all of my stuff in college was just me trying to figure out how to be Sondheim, you know, just writing stuff that was incredibly derivative uh, uh, of Steve. And people would would be, would remark how close it was to him and how, how, um, how uncannily close it was to him, actually. Um, but that's not actually a compliment. It doesn't really get you anywhere. You know, it doesn't matter if you, if you become Sondheim, then, then all you've done is just become someone who isn't you. And, uh, and the, the true thing is to figure out who you are and what you have to say uh, as an artist. And, and so I think that's where I first began that journey in this BMI workshop by, um, uh, you know, uh, I was still at that point writing by myself. I was a, an intern at Playwrights Horizons with the great um, producer Ira Weitzman. I was his intern and he said, you know, he listened to my tape and he said, you know, Bobby, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a recommendation to you and I don't want you to take this the wrong way because I think your stuff is very talented, but since you're in this workshop, why don't you write with someone else? Consider it because even if you end up writing all three, book, music, and lyrics, 
you'll always need to learn how to work with someone. You'll need to learn how to, how to work with people. You'll need to work with directors and choreographers and actors and producers. And um, that would be a great place to start. Why don't you start by working with someone else? And I thought, okay, uh, there's no reason not to. So I, I picked someone whose work I admired, um, whose work made me laugh, uh, and just started writing the 10-minute the musical at the end of year one with him. And uh, that was um, Jeff Marks. That, and that, uh, I didn't have any expectations for what would come out of this collaboration. I really didn't care whether our stuff was good. I just thought, I want to learn how to write with someone else and maybe have a little fun um maybe we can do something funny and honestly i think it was taking that pressure off that pressure of not only does this have to be brilliant but it has to be your ticket to a you know a career um it has to be your your job you have to somehow make money from this it it was that um that fun that we had that showed up in the work and ended up being worthwhile and uh, people people really liked it. Um, the, uh, the project we ended up working on was called uh, Kermit, Prince of Denmark. Um, and it, it won the Ed Kleban Award. We won this big prize, much more money than I'd ever seen in one place before. And, and you know, it was a great lesson. Right. And I would be curious to know what were some of the subjects of these early Sondheimian musicals that you <laughs> um, Let's see. Well, the, the my theater group when I was a kid, it was called the Sullivan Street Players, and it was very issue-oriented kind of theater. It was very, um, very earnest. There were things like, um, uh, there was one about getting, you know, it was almost like chorus line the first show we did, it was called Gifted, and it was about kids like trying out for a, for a high school, um, auditioning for a high school, and I wrote uh, a number called We're About to Start, which was all all these kids kind of singing their thoughts as they walked into the room, very, very chorus line. Um, and then uh, we did one that was about, um, it was one about drug abuse, <laughs> it was called um, Ashes to Ashes, it was about the Phoenix House, that's what it was, the recovery program of Phoenix House. We did one called Alert the Media, which was um, sort of about the double-edged sword of the media in, um, you know, in the early 90s. It was very broadcast news. Um, <laughs> and um, let's see, what else? I did, um, I did a show that was very inspired by Jonathan Mark Sherman's uh, Women of Wallace that was all about these kids. You know, the part of that play where um, it's adults playing five-year-olds. Um, this was a whole show of adults playing, playing you know, nursery school kids in a playground and they, they have a, you know, they get married and then divorced <laughs> in the playground. It was all about um, sort of uh, the pain of growing up and learning, learning that you don't know anything. Um, <laughs> you know, there was, there was, there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of talent in it, but it was all bad. <laughs> Right, right. And what were some of the shows that you were working on at Playwrights Horizons with with Ira Weitzman? What do you think you learned from from those? Oh, it was it was it was such a uh, I was so lucky to find myself there uh, at that time. The first thing that I got to work on was was Wise Guys, which um, later became Bounce and Gold and Roadshow. Um, it was, uh, you know, it was Steve, watching Stephen Sondheim start to develop this piece. Um, I guess he had had one 
workshop and this was sort of a way station and I realized, oh, these things get done, um, you know, with very, no sets, no lights, nothing, just actors at music stands and music directors and, you know, he would write, he would change uh, to the, and, um, you know, he'd send in these, these, all these um, changes from his house. He didn't come to the very end. And, um, you know, I got to, I got to be a fly on the wall. It was incredible. I also did um, uh, Marie Christine, um, which I still think is just one of the most beautiful scores of that era. Incredible, incredible work uh, from Michael John McHugh's and I got to be, I got to, my very first day on the job was, was um, Xeroxing his score, which was a big deal because uh, music is written on nine by 12 paper and um, it just makes it a bitch to Xerox. Uh, I get to do every page by hand. You got to make sure that nothing gets cut off. Um, and so I, I Xerox this thousand page score with him in the room, just sounding off to me about everything it was great. Uh, I worked a little on a new brain. Um, I got to give Bill Finn a back rub. <laughs> it's awesome. And um, I worked on uh, a parade. Jason Robert Brown. Um, it was such a, such a, the very first day of that, there, I showed up and no one was there. And there was this music on the piano for, um, I forget what song it was, but um, I, I, I sat at the piano and started to pick it out, you know, in my, I don't, I don't, not a great sight reader, but I was trying. And then someone came in and I was, I was like, oh, now someone's here. I better, I better get better at this. And um, it was Jason. I didn't, I didn't know what he looked like, but I was so embarrassed that he heard me, um, he heard me badly playing his music, but he, um, he, he, uh, he let me transcribe some stuff that he needed done a couple of songs. And I just recently saw the, um, the production at Encores and those songs are still in it. It's uh, I was like, Oh, this was one of the ones I did. <laughs> Um, incredible score that that was ahead of its time clearly because the world hadn't yet gone to complete hell. <laughs> right. um, it, it's such a it's such a wonderful and, and um, uh, scary scary piece um, and beautiful. And what else did I do? I did I did another thing, but I don't think you would have heard of it. It was called the Gingerbread House, but that's where I met Nikki James, who was sixteen wow. years old, and um, and she blew me away and I thought, oh, I gotta work with that girl one day. And you of course had a BA in English, like your famous song from Yale. And what do you think that that sort of background in literature and all that, or how do you think it helped you when? Oh, it's so important, I think, to have something, uh, have something to write about. You know, when you're, uh, when you're I, I suppose some people could do it, could be a, could be a writer, um, but for me, having the, that experience at Yale, right, reading the Fairy Queen, reading the Canterbury Tales, reading Shakespeare, reading so many, so much literature, and you know, cramming so many ideas into my head, God knows what they were, but they they were filling my head. And and in in the beginning, when I was in my twenties, I would fill up pages of notebooks with ideas for shows that kind of came to me. Uh, from from things um, I had done at Yale, I, there was a I read this book called Pamela, which was a um, a 
basically an early novel that was kind of like The Sound of Music, but a lot racier. It was all about a governess that came to work in a, in a rich house with a master who was, uh, you know, very lecherous. And it was all about her. Um, it was written in, in epistolary format um, with letters back and forth. Um, and you sort of deduced what was going on through these letters. And I, you know, that was one of my early projects in BMI. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, the other thing was, I think I learned the basic metaphor that I still go to every day uh, from Shakespeare. I did the metaphor of, of what music does in the world. Um, and the, I, wrote a, I wrote a piece about, um, actually, <laughs> I used, this, was a, this is a very clever trick that you might want to try when you're in college. Um, I was a double major, I doubled in English and music. And in my senior year, I was stuck having to take all of these classes because I hadn't done it. I hadn't taken enough of my requirement. I did 13 classes in my senior year and I had to make things count double. <laughs> so I, I, did a, I did a piece uh, that was actually presented in the Yale swimming pool um, of The Tempest. I wrote music for The Tempest and that was my composition uh, project thesis for music, for my music um, dissertation. And it and I also wrote my English dissertation, not dissertation, thesis, uh, thesis about um, music in the Tempest. And in that play, um, the, uh, the, the, my thesis was all about the character of Ariel and, and the way Ariel kind of um, represented a uh, Renaissance magic um, metaphor for what music was basically they, they believed in magic back then they had no reason not to and they they thought that music was a, a spirit that was born along the air like you would sing and the music would be carried along the air like any spirit like uh, language and um and that it uh it would speak it could speak directly to the soul of someone else and that emotions were made of of you know the same stuff basically made of air um airy spirits basically that, that's what ariel was and um it wasn't that was shakespeare's dramatization of his concept that was common back then um and uh and i i i still think about that every time i write a song i think that music is something you're sending out on the air that has the potential to help other people that, that has the potential to heal other people that can send them into panic that can send them into you know that can communicate dread that can really communicate anything directly with their emotions and um i don't think i really thought about music that way i think i thought of i before that i thought of music as just something that came from the music store that something that was you know oh i i love sondheim so i'm gonna write like sondheim i had never thought what's the purpose of this why am i doing this what is what what does this actually do for other people? And I think there's a, once I kind of began to put that together, that's when people started to pay me uh, because the music was doing something for, for others as opposed to just being there for no reason. Oh yeah. And your music certainly has done all of that and, and more for many people. Oh, thank you. And so uh, having a show in the Yale swimming pools, of course, itself a Sondheim tribute. The Sondheim music. Of course, yeah, we were, and we were, uh, yeah, I was, I did it. It wasn't my idea. This guy, Matt Shackman, um, who was a classmate of mine, ha also loved Sondheim and, and was interested in the frogs and 
apparently uh, someone else had done the same thing years before Sondheim did it. Um, and there was this sort of weird tradition of doing theater in the pool. And so it was his idea and, and we both thought we were being very clever by doing what Sondheim did. But of course, the song about the echo lasting for days, it, that line's there for a reason. It really, you cannot hear a thing. Um, and, <laughs> and the first part of the play was great because we could show the shipwreck um, with real splashing, real falling off a mast, you know, into the water and stuff. But after that, you really, you couldn't hear anything. And did you, um, that person asked, did you ever get any advice about songwriting from him directly or did he ever react to the Book of Mormon or having Q or? Oh, Sondheim? Right, right. Yes, yes. Well, Sondheim, when I was about your age, I, um, I found a way to get Sondheim my early songs on a demo tape. And um, he, of course, wrote me back as he does to, or as, as he did to everyone that wrote him. And he was so encouraging and so gentle, but taught me a lot just in that one short response. Um, and we, we kept up a little bit and he actually, um, uh, he wrote my, he wrote me a recommendation letter um, to, to Yale and it was, uh, it was an incredible, incredible thing for him to do. It was not very long. Again, he didn't really know me that well, but he, he sort of gotten a sense of who I was and um, yeah, he, he, uh, he would, he would send me little bits of advice as I went further into my career. He, um, you know, there was a time when, when he sent me something that was a little bit, it was hard for me to take because I, uh, you know, he was right. But, um, it, you know, I, Jeff and I had just been on New York one after winning the Tony and we were, we were just basically celebrating on in the, during this interview. And he said, you know, really, you don't, you don't want to be seen to gloat because it's a very small community and, and people, um, people's, people get uh, easily hurt by that. Why would you do that? And, um, you know, that it was, it was good advice. You know, you want to be always be humble. You want to always be, um, and, and everybody wants the prize, even though the prize doesn't mean much in the end. Um, Sondheim, I didn't even put it together until recently when we, we, I saw we got to know each other better towards the end of his life when we moved out to Connecticut during the pandemic. Um, he, he told me that, um, that he had, really hoped that assassins would be honored with a Tony because it was, it was kind of interrupted in its first journey to Broadway, you know, it was, it was off Broadway and then it closed, it didn't go to Broadway the first time around. And then uh, a number of years later, it was put up on Broadway and then it was deemed to be a revival. So he couldn't be up for the Tony. And of course, if he had, he would have gotten it, <laughs> you know, he would have, it would have been his Tony, but that was the one that I ended up winning. So I think, I think, um, you know, my celebrating on New York one must have, must have hurt his feelings. And I, I felt terribly about that when I put that together, my God, <laughs> Jesus. And so how did the idea for having a cue first come about? And um, You know, that was really very related to the process of trying to figure out who I was as a writer. Um, I had gotten together with Jeff Marks in the BMI workshop, and we were trying to think of a project that we would follow up Kermit Prince of Denmark. We had we'd written Kermit Prince of Denmark, we had won this prize, and then we tried to pitch it to Jen Henson Company. Um, but 
uh, in the end, they said no. They were they said um, you know we don't want to do a Shakespeare, uh, even though we thought it was more than just a Shakespeare. It was very ironic and very silly and um, and pretty funny and postmodern. Um, but they they said uh, kids don't know Shakespeare, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and. Um, and so we were kind of stuck. We had written this thing that had uh, one potential buyer. And yet at the same time, we really fallen in love with this art form of puppetry. And we had gotten to know this man, Rick Lyon, who uh, had come in and performed Kermit at the, uh, at the workshop. He came in and he had his hand in a garbage bag and then he pulled the garbage bag off and out came Kermit. It was just, and Kermit was alive, you know, it was like this, this um, celebrity that was in, suddenly in the room. And yet, and you could see him doing the puppet. Uh, there was this guy, Rick, doing the puppet, but everybody's eyes were on the puppet. And you, you almost didn't even, uh, you couldn't put it together that there was a man operating, even though you saw his mouth moving and uh, all that stuff. It was, it was just a very theatrical moment and a very special moment. And we had, uh, we really loved working with him. So we kind of thought to ourselves, let's make our own puppet characters. Let's, let's do something that doesn't only have one buyer. Let's make a show. Um, and uh, so we were trying to think, we spent a long time trying to, come up, trying to come up with the right idea. And in fact, we were thinking of it as a television show. So we were trying to think of, you know, the way people pitch TV shows sometimes is X plus Y. Um, and one night I was, I was uh, up very late. I lived in my parents' place. I was um, very lucky to have to have grown up in New York, like you. And uh, I moved right back into my parents and, <laughs> and saved my money and, and tried to and, and you know did what I needed to do to, to start out as a writer. Um, but I was I was up late. I might have had a couple of drinks, and I was looking at the TV, which was off. But then I was thinking, um, friends plus Sesame Street. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and I, I called up Jeff right then. It was late at night and he's, and he, he had, you know, I thought of him as someone that just said no uh, <laughs> every time I pitched him anything. But, um, but this one time Jeff said, yes, that's it, that's Eureka. Um, and we filled the page that night with, with song ideas because it seemed to us that just about any problem that you had in your everyday life, in our everyday life, could be a song. You know, um, the first one I think was um, Tear It Up and Throw It Away, which was a song about jur getting jury duty. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, everyone's a little bit racist, which I think came about because um, I had just gone to visit my grandmother and, you know, like many people's grandmothers, she had outdated ideas about about race and i was freshly terrorized from that visit and uh, um and that came up um you know we just thought like oh your laundry that could be an episode your you know your um your parents are coming to visit you know whatever like things anything that that uh that attacked your your dignity any problem that that happened to a 20 something as we were dealing, you know, drinking, and um, we didn't want to go to drugs, and we never wanted to do that, but it, it basically, the tone of it was very clear that it wanted to be funny and um, irreverent, audacious, 
and sometimes teach the wrong lesson, but always have its heart in the right place. Always, um, you know, the metaphor being education, you know, these, these puppets, there's someone somewhere, the writers have an educational plan um, for this show and it's to teach you, you know, what to do when you get that jury duty summons or, you know, when, when your grandma says something racist or, um, uh, you know, um, when you don't, when you feel so depressed that you don't even want to get out of bed. <laughs> um, that was the idea. And that project had a lot of, a lot of momentum right away. We just wanted to write it. We were so excited. We created characters. We created, we, we couldn't wait to share them with Rick and he would do these drawings, which just really inspired us that, you know, that someone would do, do drawings based on stuff you just thought of. And uh, our first, our first attempt to, to put it up, well, actually we had done it in BMI. We brought the songs into BMI and some of them were then selected for a showcase that, we, that BMI used to put up. And that, we, we did three songs. I, I had been bitten by a dog, so I, and the wound had become infected. So I couldn't play the piano. So Jeff was playing the piano and therefore, for some reason, I don't know why this makes sense, but for, for that reason, I had to play Kate Monster in the song, and I had this red yarn wig. We didn't have the puppets yet. Uh, I, I was wearing a red yarn wig, and I walked into the room, and um, in the room was, um, was a first-year student at BMI Chris, named Kristen Anderson, and she came up to me after, the, after that very first performance of Avenue Q, and, um, and that's when we started dating. Wow. <laughs> um, so all this stuff was very important in my life. Um, you know, it was very, all very significant. Um, the very first time we put it up as a pilot, we had a 40, 40 minute pilot that we had written with a, with a few of the songs. And then we had, uh, we tried to fill it to make it at least a little over an hour. Um, <laughs> we did, uh, we did some songs that we hadn't written. We did, um, Kate Monster sang, um, Taylor the Latte Boy and it, Honestly, Stephanie DeBruzzo singing Taylor Latte Boy to me is the definitive performance of that song. It really was was spectacular and just had so much charm. Um, then, uh, then I guess it was Kate and Nikki did Like It Was for Merrily We Roll Along. We just wanted to do these adult seeming songs that yet had a had a bright a bright coloredness to them. And then we finished the show with Racist. Uh, which which brought down the house and uh, Jeffrey Seller was in the audience. Robin Goodman, Kevin McCollum, and those they they were interested right away and and brought us on. Only uh, you know three years later we were on Broadway. Uh, it, it took a very long time to 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 craft the story. That was the um, that's the hard part. I hate to say of any show, you can have a very inspired idea, you can have a very plain. Uh, idea that didn't take a lot of ingenuity, but crafting a story that uh, that moves the audience and gives them an experience that they that changes them so much, it means so much to them that they will tell their friends about it and and give you a hit show. That takes time. That's hard. That's the hardest part. And were there ever any worries during the creative process about it being like too controversial for a mainstream audience or any, was there any need to tone it down or? I think that, you know, it always felt like an off-Broadway show. I think that that, that was the, um, 
we were never thinking about toning it down. Um, of course, there were some things that felt wrong and rubbed people wrong, and we, we made changes to it all the time. Um, but it was, uh, it was really um, a matter of where does the show belong and who is the show for? And we wanted it to be for the most people it could be. We wanted it to, to we didn't want it to be some campy little show that was just funny. We wanted it to, to mean something, to be about more than just um, edgy, edgy, cute ideas. It had to be about, you know, what it would end up being was, you know, your search for your purpose in life and that um, naive feeling that your purpose is only about you in some way, the, 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 um, the story in the end, um, real, you know, the character realizing that um, my purpose is, is making the people I love happy and maybe doing something good for the world. So I, I think that, that the romance between Kate and Princeton um, made it made it a little bit you know more more universal than what you would think you know the way people some people described it Sesame Street on crack or this, you know this like that wasn't it was never that and it never it never felt like that and anyone that did see it knew that. And when did you begin to have a sense that it would be as successful as it was? And you know every time we did it, people were got excited. People would run up to us with this with this enthusiasm. And so we knew that it was it was exciting to people, and yet we felt like uh, a lot of people said, "Who is this for? You know, what is this, and who is it for? It's not for anybody. Is it for young people? Young people don't don't go to Broadway." Um, uh, so uh, you know, we never had the feeling that it would be a big hit, um, and we always hoped that it would go off Broadway somewhere and have a life off Broadway. But um, when well, first of all, I should say the uh, the opening night on Broadway, we got this Times review that, um, and I, honestly, I, I sort of alluded to this earlier that I just didn't have Kristen and I at that point were were living together, and we just didn't have two nickels uh, between us. And um, you know that the very night of the opening, we had to stop by the temp agency to pick up Kristen's check. Uh, I wasn't able to to do my day job while I was doing the show. So Kristen was really kind of floating us all. Um, and she was, I don't, I, you know, she, she will tell you, she it was, you know, it, she was getting a little tired of it. Um, but uh, that night, the show was, show got this uh, Brantley, Ben Brantley good review from the Times. And um, I knew that meant that I would have some kind of career. I would have some kind of career in the theater, and uh, that was a that was a huge a huge moment for me. And then, of course, when the when the producers told us we'd go to Broadway, it was um, unbelievable. You know, it was just this feeling of uh, you know it's happening. <laughs> the dream is coming true. We got to go around and shop for a Broadway theater. We went to you know, they, they took us on a tour of like, oh, here's the Helen Hayes, here's the booth. Um, <laughs> that was, a, you know, here's the Walter Curve. It's just, un, it was like, you know, out of this world. I had never really been anywhere close to the stage before in a Broadway theater. I had never gotten good seats. So just to be able to go in and walk around was, it felt like, it felt so privileged. Um, 
Yeah. And then, you know, it, I, I started to feel it around then. Oh, yeah. And what made you decide not to, at least in credit, work on the book for this project and wish you would do later on? And... Well, we, we, we started off doing the book. We wrote our own, we uh, wrote our own scenes. We, we, we were good at writing sketches, me and Jeff. We wrote the sketch that never was in the show, but it was, it was funny. It was all about transferring credit card debt. It was kind of like an Ernie and Bert, um, you know, the, the Ernie and Bert bit about, well, where'd you, um, where's my cowboy hat? You know, oh, I, I forget, I forget. What, oh, where's the pot? You know, I used the pot to, um, to, I don't know, it was, I don't know, sorry, I don't, I can't remember what it was, but it was, it was a, it was kind of a bit about, about transferring one credit card debt to another card. Um, and we, we were good at writing those, but we didn't have a good sense of dialogue and structure and um, all that important playwriting stuff. So we, we wrote the first draft of the musical with another collaborator and our producers had a tough conversation with us and they said, listen, we're very excited about this show. We want to produce it, but we want you to think about taking yourselves off the book um, and working with a playwright, you know, a real playwright. We have been, our other collaborator was a TV guy. Um, and um, we, we, you know, thought about it and realized that they had a point that, you know, we didn't really know how to write a play. We were good at writing these songs. We had a sense of that, but we, we certainly didn't know. We had no experience writing, writing a play. And writing a book to a musical, which is which is one of the hardest things that a playwright can do. Uh, so that's when Jeff Whitty came aboard. And, um, you know, even that was was tricky. It took years to get the tone right, to find the right story, to write the songs that needed, that we needed to fill out the score uh, that would, they were, and they ended up being the engines of the, of the show, the song Purpose. Um, that was, that was, that's the I want song, you know, you don't, you don't really have a show without that strong want of your main character. Um, and uh, the song, um, Give Us Your Money at the end, the money song, uh, that song, you know, there's no climax of the story without that song. Even though that's no one's favorite song, it, it works really well when you're watching the show, you'd miss it if it wasn't there. And what was the process like of finding a director for this show and, and of collaborating with him? We were really lucky to, um, to really be, just be introduced to one director uh, who, who um, our agent knew and who Jeff Whitty had worked with and knew, uh, Jason Moore. He, he was just fresh off of, um, I guess he had done some television work. He had done um, uh, Les Mis. He had been the, uh, the associate director of Les Mis and he had done a, a show off Broadway. Um, but honestly, nothing, it was just his confidence, uh, his ability to communicate, um, the fact that we all liked him and could, uh, you know, he could, he could direct traffic in such a way that led us to uh, work together well and uh, and not get stuck and uh, and also he had um i think he had a lot of really smart ideas about the shape of a story and uh what what we didn't have you know in our story yet things like um you know the, the conflict between uh, the, the love triangle of kate 
monster and Lucy and Princeton um, was really kind of something that that Jason um, encouraged us to to put in there and um, the, using the the symbol of uh, the penny that Princeton finds to um, then you know he gives it to Kate Monster as a symbol of his love and then she drops it from the Empire State Building when she realizes she's done with him and it hits Lucy in the head and buries it into her brain like all that 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 stuff was was um, thanks to Jason kind of helping us uh, shape the story and figure out what what would work. And when you have such a long run on Broadway, like you did with having EQ, and of course currently do with the Book of Mormon, how often do you like to revisit the show, go watch the show? And um, you know, I I don't go back quite a lot because I mean it's it's nice to go back, but I mean you know directors have to go back because they're upkeeping they're keeping up the show. But then they're also able to kind of move right on to their next project, whereas writers really have to um, uh, have to get ready again. You know, like the, you need to you need you need to kind of move on. So I think with Avenue Q, we went back a number of times. We went back a lot, uh, a lot because we wanted to be in the family of it. You know, we still had that feeling of oh, theater is something you do with your friends. Theater is a theater is a family that you're in. Whereas I think in, in professional theater, the writer is adjunct. You know, the writer is kind of like mom and dad, you know, <laughs> you're not really, you're not really um, part of the day-to-day -day family. And you're there and you're kind of like, I don't need to be here. <laughs> um, it's nice to go back. And the one time that, uh, one of the times that we went back to Avenue Q, um, the head usher told us, um, that Matt and Trey from South Park were there, and they, the, everybody knew that we idolized them, and um, so it was it was very fortuitous that that we um, that we went that night and were able to meet them, these heroes of ours that we had uh, thanked in the program. We had uh, we had said, um, you know, Bobby and Jeff wish to thank Matt and Trey. <laughs> uh, they were like they had they had just read that when we when we came up and said hello. And I think they were a little bit weirded out, a little <laughs> freaked out that they were like, why, we don't know you, why'd you thank us? Uh, of course we said, you know, because this would not exist without South Park. Um, so thank you. And then we, that led to the night that we, we went across the street to this bar and, you know, just talked all night. They, they, they called Shaman and Shaman came over too. And we're just all, you know, Having drinks and we were talking that they, they asked us well what's your next thing and um and we had we had briefly talked about maybe doing a bible part three book of mormon musical me and jeff and they said that's crazy that's what we want to do we've been wanting to do joseph smith the musical for years so let's talk and, and that's what that's directly led to book of mormon we um we had no idea we didn't think that it would we we really thought it was all just talk uh, until they just kept bothering us Right. Uh, so it was, uh, it was, it was really good luck. And so how did you first become aware that writing for the screen would be something you were interested in? You know, that's funny. I, I never thought that it was never something I dreamed I could do. It's not the kind of thing. That's the kind of thing that you can't start up yourself. I, at least I don't think you can. Maybe some people do. But, you know, you do theater in school. You do, you know, you do the musical every year. You, it feels 
it feels accomplishable. Um, whereas animation, live action, it's all like um, magic that, that you kind of need millions of dollars to do. Um, so I never really thought about it. Of course, you know, as a kid, some of my biggest influences were Star Wars. Like I love the I love the movies. Star Wars. I'm you won't find a bigger Star Wars fan than me, and you know the the music from Star Wars is is deeply ingrained into my into my brain. Um, uh, also Disney. You know I had the records, a Jungle Book, and the Rescuers, and Cinderella, and Alice in Wonderland. Growing up, I just had all this Disney already in me because. I mean, first of all, who doesn't, you know? Second of all, um, you know, I was a little musical sponge as a kid. I loved, I loved music, and I, I, I um, keep it very close to myself um, in my, you know, my heart. So um, anyway, I. The truth was, when I was in my Sondheim phase, I didn't listen. That was when. Mencken and Ashman were writing all their their classics, but I didn't go see them and I didn't really notice, you know, I was so, I was, I, to, for lack of a better word, I was a bit of a snob. And, um, and I thought, you know, oh, you know, I, I'm turning my back on all those childish things. I am a real theater aesthete. And um, uh, it was weird. So I missed Little Mermaid, I missed Beauty and the Beast. And I missed Lion King. I didn't. I didn't see any of that. But one summer, uh, as college was drawing to a close, someone said, "You want to go see Hunchback?" And I said, "Sure." I, I somehow I was like, you know, I gotta, I gotta open up my taste. I gotta, figure, I gotta listen to some other things. I can't just listen to "Merrily We Roll Along" again. <laughs> um, and I couldn't believe what I was seeing on that screen. It was so deep. It was so musically rich. Um, you know, the, you had Frollo, who was basically the judge from Sweeney Todd. It was so adult and so tortured, and and so and then you had uh, Quasimodo with a beautiful song. Um, I just I began to I began to think, oh geez, I've been I've been a real I've been a blind to something very very special going on, and um, that you know when I graduated, I I rented all the. I rented Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, and I began to realize, like, oh my God, this is all wonderful. It's all just, it's all so vibrant and special. Um, and Jeff Marks also was a huge Disney head, so he was he was giving me all the parks information. He, I, I learned a lot about Disney in, without ever going, you know, just from just from listening to, to watching these movies and and sort of downloading a bunch of stuff from Jeff's. Uh, Florida background. He, he grew up going to the parks. Um, anyway, uh, Disney was was on my radar, and I tried to tried to work with them every chance I got. the um, the first The first thing that happened was there was a guy in BMI who was the he was uh, named Brian Woodbury, and he was the music supervisor of Bear in the Big Blue House. And every once in a while, when he couldn't um, when he couldn't write a song, or you know, he had too much to do, he would he would, um, you know, throw a little bit of work to a, a new writer that he liked. And he did that for me and for Kristen and for Jeff Marks. Um, and that was our kind of foot in the door with Disney. We, we wrote songs for Bear and the Big Blue House. Uh, and then uh, another show he did called uh, The Book of Pooh, which was about Winnie the Pooh. And um, uh, 
I guess that was sort of it for a while. And then the, a few years later, we did Finding Nemo, the musical. That was when Kristen and I got married. Um, she was offered, first she was offered this show called Lucky the Animatronic Dinosaur, <laughs> which was an animatronic dinosaur that, that the parks had. And they were trying to figure out things to use it on and their first idea was in some kind of musical which i don't know what that would have been like but kristen had exactly one day uh kind of trying to brainstorm an outline for that when she got a call from the same people saying you know forget forget lucky the animatronic dinosaur what do you think about finding nemo as a musical <laughs> which to me it's like you couldn't think of two you know you couldn't think of a, a a more contrasting project to Lucky the Animatronic Dinosaur than than a musical based on one of the greatest and uh, greatest blockbusters, you know, huge, huge classic animated movies and Finding Nemo. We had just seen it in the theaters and it was it was glorious. It was it was really I thought it transcended the art form of the of uh, CGI. It was my the first one that I loved. I hadn't seen Toy Story two, um, but. But that was the first one that I really cried during. And um, that was wonderful. And it was, we were also, maybe it was because we were, we had just become parents or we were about to become parents. Kristen was, was pregnant with our first daughter. And, um, and so we, uh, you know, we, we said, um, we, we said yes assiduously to that project and really threw our all into it. I had had a feeling over the years um, that I was, you know, that writing comedy music was a, was fun and rewarding, but that I, I, I longed for more challenging, a more challenging mode of expression than, than always serving the lyric, always trying to come up with a better punchline to top the last one. And, um, and boom, chick, boom, chick, boom, chick. It just, it was getting to me. It was getting, I was really getting, getting tired and getting, uh, getting angry and starting to not like writing as much. Um, because I really, you know, I, 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 I'm a sensitive person. <laughs> what can I say? And, uh, and so Finding Nemo began this journey for me of writing music that was a little more challenging, maybe not the most challenging, maybe even you know, called super accessible, but it was a little bit more adventurous harmonically than Avenue Q. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a tribute to Brian Wilson in it, the, the song Go With The Flow. Anyway, we, um, we worked very hard and we threw our all into it. And it was, a, it was, it was kind of our, you know, our, our first um, foot in the door with Disney, honestly, was that I think that was the first thing that anyone would have noticed from Disney that we did. We got to work with John Lasseter and um, Andrew Stanton, who um, who was the director of Finding Nemo. Lee Unkrich was the co-director. We got to work. We got to meet him, and um, and I think and we got to tell Lasseter that what we aspired to be was was a Disney songwriter. You know, to 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 work for Disney, to do an animated feature, to do a um, that that was our dream, and I think he listened and, and eventually uh, brought us in. And having written what is definitely, I'd say, the most popular song from a from a Disney and Disney children's movie, what do you think is the art of writing something to appeal specifically to a young audience? If or do you approach it differently? Or? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I, I don't think we. I, 
if there's ever anything at Disney that feels like it's for kids, then that gets that gets labeled as too young. The um, the work that they do is really all about uh, being for all audiences, for family audiences, you know, for for everybody. And um, I think that's a much trickier challenge because you have to write something interesting enough to have something to say to grandma and grandpa, to to mom and dad, to you know aunts, uncles, and nephews, nieces, and and babies. And so it's it's really it has to be a very strong story. Um, and uh, honestly, we we work on those harder um, and. Because there's so few songs in a Disney movie, uh, they have to count. And because they, you know, Disney has a reputation for songs that last forever, that last hundreds of years, um, they they don't shy away from telling you that. You know, we're we're trying to go for eternity. <laughs> you know, with this, let's try and let's try and you know let's try and bring it up a notch, uh, <laughs> which is not something you hear a lot in the theater. They don't apply pressure in the theater that way. They have things called throwaway songs in the theater. Uh, you kind of need them sometimes to make the to make the the big songs pop a little bit more. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so the the drive for writing a classic is a is is a little bit stronger um, when you're working for Disney. And and we're straight A students. We want to want to uh, want to we want to please. Our bosses. Right. And I know an early project that you worked on for Disney that didn't end up happening was the movie Gigantic about Jack and the Beanstalk. And how did that sort of not end up? Well, that was a that was a really uh, painful one um, because we it seemed for a while that between Coco and Gigantic that we were just writing all of this stuff. That was not seeing the light of day. It was just they would get cut, and then the you know with Coco we wrote one song that was that was sort of the spine of the movie. It was like the MacGuffin of the whole plot, um, but it became not a musical midway through the process, and it became uh, we became not the writers of it because because it wasn't a musical. You know, it wasn't what we did anymore. It was meant to be a movie with authentic or authentic feeling Mexican folk songs. And um, and so we stepped away from that project with having written maybe maybe 10 songs, uh, none of which were ever heard. And some of which were our favorites, you know, some, some of which are some of the best work we did. Um, so that was frustrating. And then and then Gigantic, uh, same story, the whole, well, it was so a different story in that the whole project was shelved, which is something that almost never happens uh, at Disney Animation. It, I think the problem was that they never quite cracked the story, honestly. Um, there were lots of different attempts at the story. One of them involved Christopher Columbus, the Age of Exploration, which I always thought was a little bit, you know, problematic, <laughs> quite honestly. It was sort of very, touched very closely to, to uh, colonialism and, um, so I never thought that was going to go great, and and that that approach was was dropped. And then we decided to go. This one I don't think has ever even been been mentioned before. The the idea that we sort of were trying to make this John Hughes movie, this almost like a love story with Jack 
uh, as the as the underclassman and Inla, the the girl as um as this um almost like <laughs> a little bit older and like this giant girl it's basically it's this this little guy who was in love with a giant girl and um and it was we wanted to make it we wanted it to be you know a romantic 80s movie kind of score there was a lot of great stuff in it i was and one of the songs became the seed of into the unknown from frozen 2 it was uh um it was a you know one of those melancholy feeling um 80s songs that they don't really make anymore like uh everybody everybody wants to rule the world that sort of a twinge of melancholy that deep achy feeling at the heart of a pop song that that uh, that i really I, I really enjoy uh in that from that time period and uh we wanted it to be about adolescence about um but uh, for for whatever reason we could never seem to make it work and part of it was the story began in on earth and then by about page 40, Jack would climb up the beanstalk and we'd, we'd sort of been, be in a different story. Um, and all of these other, uh, all these other characters would, would be, have to be introduced and you kind of forgot about what Jack wanted back down in, on earth. And uh, so I think, you know, structurally it was a challenge, a challenge to, to make it cohere. And honestly, um, you know, I think there was a communication issue on that team too. We just didn't quite ever get on the same page together, even though everyone was super nice and super talented. And you mentioned uh, being a fan of Alan Menken movies and all that, and Frozen, of course, developed from an originally Alan Menken idea and project. And how did that <clears throat> come into your life? And Actually, it, um, it preceded Menken by about 40 or 50 years. I think it started with Walt Disney long 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 ago when we thought about doing it um in the 40s and um yeah i know that that alan had had done some work on it i don't know to what extent i don't know what what he had done but um i think it was called the snow queen for a while and then they got the idea to um to call it frozen somewhere around the time that uh, rapunzel became tangled um, because I think it was a an issue of marketing uh, princess movies at that time. There was, you know, things had become so demographized and and so you know so gross, honestly. Like that, met boys wouldn't go see a girls' movie, but girls would see a boys' movie. You know, what a, this nonsense that that still uh, affects our society. Um, but. Uh, I don't know. I don't. I really, honestly, don't know how we got the job. I think part of it was just that we had just done uh, Winnie the Pooh, and had a really fun experience making it. You know, I don't think that movie did did very well, but it's a good movie, and the songs were really fun, and um, it showed. I think it showed Disney. At least it showed me how how strong Kristen was as a collaborator. She just has a really great story mind. Which is the the main thing you need in Hollywood? You need you need a mind that that can do the math, and it's really complicated math. Honestly, these these emotional large structures you need to know what need what you don't have, and and honestly, that's not my strong point. I I'm very good at moments and 
details and jokes and the small scale structure. The large scale structure befuddles me sometimes. And um, uh, and Kristen was sort of a rock star on Winnie the Pooh. And I think, and honestly, they 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 pitched me. I was in Hollywood working on um, a South Park episode. I did uh, the Broadway Bro Down um, musical episode of South Park. Um, and Disney called and said, would you be interested in coming over and hearing this pitch? They, they pitched me um, the story of Frozen such as it was, it really was not anything close to what we ended up with. And um, the, uh, they showed me some artwork and I saw, you know, these two girls, the, the little one was looking up at the, at the bigger one and the bigger one was putting, you know, throwing all this magic snow into the air and the look of delight on the younger one's face. And I thought, oh my God, we have to do this. You know, it, it's, it's our girls, it's Kristen and her sisters. It's this, you know, it's this movie about family. It's, it seems to be about romantic love, but it's not about romantic love. It's about the love of a family and a family healing. And um, that's, that's our story. You know, that's honestly, that's the, um, that's what we, uh, that's what we know. We have something to say about that. And um, there were a lot of problems with the original script, um, and it took a lot of work, it took a lot of um, a lot of development, and a lot of uh, a lot of pain. <laughs> quite honestly, a lot of pain uh, making it. But um, because we had that initial love, it got us through this difficult, difficult experience um, developing this thing uh, that none of us really knew how to do. Um, and of course, when I pitched to Chris, when I told Kristen about it and then she saw it, she was like, you're absolutely right. And I, I can't believe we get to work on this. So it was, um, you know, it was, it was our dreams coming true and that we got this, um, we got this dream job of a princess movie with Disney. And yet it was, um, you know, and yet it was really, it, it had the opportunity to say something big about the princess culture and the culture of gender in um in as it applies to the fairy tale and what were some of the changes that were made to the original script or just along the way <clears throat> sure the original original story uh was uh really elsa was um the villain and she was you know they had all these ideas influenced by wicked she was born blue and she had this blue spiky hair and um she was she was the older she was always the older child but in the first draft she was the wild child she was kind of uh, she they kept calling her a freak her powers are not a secret in that version they were just she was just this obviously uh, unfit queen who was the heir to the throne and um and anna was as a result she bore all this responsibility she she was like i'll be perfect i'll uh, you know i gotta balance my sister i've got to <clears throat> I've got to, um, I've got to do everything right. If she's going to be wrong, I'm going to be right. And so she, be, she grew up into this kind of uh, rule follower um, who wanted the perfect wedding and the, the exact right color of, of butter yellow flowers at the wedding. And she was kind of like a little bit of a perfectionist bridezilla. And um, so, and then Elsa came in and just messed up the whole wedding. She froze all the guests and the priest and the, um, 
and then she had all these mutant snowmen that destroyed the church and and then she she kidnapped Anna and froze her heart on purpose in the in the um palace and then Elsa and then Anna escapes and Elsa with her her henchman Olaf um chased after her for about 40 pages of script it was like it was a it was a big mess it just felt you didn't really like Elsa and you didn't like Anna so until the very end when Anna sacrificed herself for Elsa you didn't like anybody um but you could sense a lot of um a lot of potential in that ending so the ending we capped and then so what we did was the base the basic idea was uh most most first children we know, such as myself and um, and Ch and Kristen, um, are the um, rule followers and the perfectionists. And what if Elsa was that? What if Elsa was a a buttoned up, straight A rule follower with a deep secret um, and shame? And Anna was the wild child. What if Anna was the um, the crazy, you know, no, everyone's, the first child gets all the attention, the second child needs to beg for the attention and, and goes nuts, uh, you know, uh, that's, that's how our kids are. Um, and, uh, and that was it. Then we realized, okay, if Elsa is this buttoned up queen and a princess with a secret, her powers come out one day as they must. And all the shame, all the devastation, all the uh, she she self exiles, and she and she's up there on the mountain, and then what? Then we have a song. <laughs> then we have like a big big transformation song from this this person that has so much um, so much uh, shame and and uh, inner turmoil to someone who just lets it all go, and. And not only that, you know, there's a big wardrobe change as well, and uh, an excitement of magic coming out, <clears throat> you know, freely, and it all just it all just said to us that there's there's our big song. It was called in the outline. It was labeled as Elsa's badass song, <laughs> and um, and we were very keen to write it. And Kristen came up with the title "Let It Go" because it was letting go of the past at the same time it was letting go of her power um it was that feeling my way into it was as a hunter kid really as a straight a student you know as as mr perfect growing up thinking about how unpleasant that was <laughs> and um and how what would have happened if i had really messed up a big task messed up the sat or something and i didn't get into the school that i wanted to get into and it was just a big, a big moment of failure, and I thought, well, of course, it would, it would be devastating. It would be like everything I've worked for, everything I wanted, um, all for nothing. And then, and then I imagined like that, that might feel good, you know, the, the weight lifting, <laughs> you know, the, um, the admittance of, of powerlessness and the, 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 um, the, the, the realizing one's true power. Um, would feel great. And I, I think there's a lot of songs like that. I was thinking in the, at the time of that song, um, uh, like a Rolling Stone, you know, how does it feel to be on your own, no direction home, like a Rolling Stone. And I, I feel like, I always felt like that song 
the subtext is it feels fucking awesome. It feels great. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what the music is saying. Um, even though he's sort of he's sort of saying you're you know you're nothing. But I think being being nothing and having nothing to lose is is one of the best feelings. And that's what a lot of music is about. Right. And I'd be curious to know, too, just on a personal level, what was it like to, when this movie came out and it was such a global phenomenon and so successful? Well, what, what was amazing was it, the suspense had built pretty, pretty, uh, pretty steadily because the movie didn't work. Even when we wrote Let It Go and we put it in the movie and made the, some of those changes, we hadn't really solved all of the mechanics of opening the movie correctly. Uh, the, you might have heard before that the right opening number is everything. Um, and we didn't have that for a very long time. There was a lot of, there's a lot of material in the opening of Frozen for version three, version four, version five, that had the girls, you saw, they saw this big scene of them kind of getting changed and borrowing outfits and stuff. And it just made them seem like, oh, it's normal and everything's fine and everything's been fine. It didn't, it didn't work with the songs. There's something in the song where she sings, um, you know, don't let them in, don't let them see, be the good girl you always have to be, you know. Um, and it seems to suggest she's been holding it in, she's been alone, she's been isolated this her whole life, and we needed to we needed to tell a story that we, and we weren't telling it, that these girls were, there was a, a trauma in the past, the girls were, were separated, and the gates were shut until today. Today, for the first time in forever, the gates are opening. And that's, that song, which includes parts of Let It Go and kind of prepare us for that part of Let It Go where she's, where she lets it go. Um, there had to be an it to let go. This is the it. Um, she was so scared of these gates opening and Anna was so excited for the gates to open. It was just the, the story that needed to be told at the beginning of the, of the movie. Um, that happened in the last screening before, before we showed it to any audience. And that was the one where we felt, okay, <laughs> thank God this movie is actually telling a story that makes any sense and feels emotional. Um, and, uh, and of course the ending was always good. So when the movie finally opened, they, they did, they do what they do this test screening. They don't know if they really use this data for anything, but they, they have to test everything with an audience. The audience fills out a questionnaire. Maybe people that don't know that what they're about to see, and they're watching a version of the film that's got some parts still in black and white and some parts are still hand-drawn storyboards. Not all the animation is done, not all the music is done, and not all the, you know, it's not all the same actors. Sometimes it's scratch voices performing the parts. And at the end of this, they, 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 <laughs> they prepared us to feel very bad <laughs> because they always go badly. Um, but people were laughing, people were, people were getting it. You could feel it. And then when the numbers came in, they were like, this, this is performing like Toy Story 3. People, people are like, they're giving this a lot of recommends. Um, and uh, they were very excited. We didn't know what any of that meant, but they, we could tell that they were excited and we realized, okay, well maybe, maybe this isn't going to be a huge black eye 
after all, maybe this, maybe, maybe this will go well. And when I still could never believe how, how strongly people reacted to it and don't quite know exactly what that was all about, but it was, it was exciting to be a part of it. And it was, especially in the way that I think people right around that time were starting to interact with music um, via the internet. It was like, we, we um, made the choice to make the, the, instrumental, the instrumental versions of the songs available uh, on the album. So everybody had them and they would do their version of Let It Go or they'd make a movie of their version of Let It Go or they'd do a parody of Let It Go. And there was so much, um, so much fan interaction that I was not expecting and, and was kind of blown away by. And it was like a, a little treat every morning to, to, to do a YouTube search and see what, what had been posted. Now, of course, um, like TikTok is just, is it's the way people do it now. And um, I'm not on TikTok, but, but it's fun to, to see, you know, the, the huge culture of, it's not just people performing these songs, it's people memifying these songs and using them and, and doing little duets and collaborating over video with people in, in ways that just, you know, I, I frankly don't understand, uh, but, but, but I'm excited by it. How did the uh, decision come? Some might say sort of almost inevitable decision to bring it to Broadway in 20... Oh, Frozen. Yes. Um, well, we, we talked about it right away uh, with Tom Schumacher, who runs, who had once run animation and, um, and then moved to theater. <clears throat> Tom is really the, the mastermind of all, of all Disney Broadway stuff. And um, we, uh, he, he saw the film and, and said, we're definitely doing something with this film. And we were very excited to hear that because that had been another, um, another bucket list item for us to do, a, to do a Broadway show with Disney. And the only problem was that we didn't have a lot of time um, relative to, uh, you know, most Broadway shows, you write them and as long as it takes, that's when, that's when they get made, you know, as long as it takes for them to be ready. Someone has to get excited enough to say, we're going. Um, whereas with Frozen the musical, they said, okay, 18, spring. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that was sort of a stake in the ground and the way it worked out was in 2016, we had to write the score, which was a bigger, a bigger deal than I knew it would be. I didn't understand exactly how much more music is in a Broadway show than is, is in a Disney movie. Disney movie is shorter overall, and the songs are mostly in the first two acts. And because the, the last act is about explosions and car chases, and you know, just, action. Um, whereas in a, a Broadway show, you generally have two acts and the story is really mostly told through songs. You know, the emotional high points have to be songs. There's no close-ups. There's really no plot. Honestly, it's very emotional. The story on Broadway is, is it's a, the plot is emotional. You can't have, like when we were doing Finding Nemo the musical, there's a whole part of Finding Nemo the movie about okay, you need to jam the filter and then the dentist will have to clean it. So he'll put us all in bags. And um, 
then we'll roll out the window, cross the road, and into the ocean. It's foolproof, and that's the that's the basis of the rest of that whole part of the plot. What happens? What goes wrong? What what is the on stage? You really can't do that. There's just no right. way. And even if you could find some way of doing it, it would be like, so what? You're watching this thing. You know it's fake. It's not. There's nothing real about those plot events on a stage. The only thing that's real about stage plot events is emotion. Honestly, something has to happen emotionally in order for them, for them to register. And in the musical, the way you tell the story is with music. If something happens in the dialogue, sometimes it feels like it hasn't. You know, unless it's been in the song. So that's why. Long story short, we had to write so many songs for Frozen Broadway. We wrote twelve or thirteen new songs, um, which was double the number of the songs we wrote from the film. And um, honestly, I don't know. I don't know how well we did. We just we just did it as fast as we could and as well as we could. And um, it was hard to, for us to believe that we had done as good a job as we did in the time that was given to us because we. You know, we were told uh, in order for us to start working on this production, we were going to need a score by this date. And and that's how we approached it. We had a calendar. Uh, we blocked out, um, okay, it, uh, you know, September 15th to 18th, we'll be writing Hans's song. You know, it was like that, that, that mapped out for us because we didn't feel comfortable that we would make our deadline without that. Uh, and, you know, it was, a, it, was a, it was intense. It was a lot. At the same time, we were also doing Gigantic, we were doing Coco, and we were doing um, Frozen 2. It was just starting up. So it was a very busy time, this pre-pandemic. The, the five years prior to the pandemic were, were busy, busy, busy. And how did the idea come to create a sequel to Frozen? And was it sort of intimidating to try to <laughs> say magic? Yes, yeah. yes, you, you, you've hit on something there. Um, honestly, we were told that there would be no sequel at first. We were, you know, that was the company line at, for a while. Um, they were like, we're just, we're just tired. We're just gonna, um, gonna take a break and see what bubbles up. Maybe we'll make something else. And um, and then we got a call from um, from John Lasseter the day of the, I guess what, I don't know if it was the shareholders meeting or something. And he was like, I just want to tell you in about 30 minutes, uh, Josh Gad and I, and then Josh Gad said hello in the background, are going to go out on the stage and tell the world that we will be making Frozen 2 and we want you to be a part of it. Um, and, you know, this was a very exciting news. Of course, we didn't know, you know, it was a, it was a, um, it was a little bit scary. Of course, we wanted to do it. Um, we didn't want someone else to do it, but we hadn't really heard their idea for the story yet. And part of it was, um, it was, uh, a little bit, um, you know, like you said, it was, it was, it was scary to have to follow up this global phenomenon, especially right around the time that we started it, which was the time when our friends, our parent friends in Park Slope, where we live in Brooklyn, started to say, we, um, oh, amazing, we can't believe, we listen to your stuff all the time, your kids love it, it's so great, thank you. 
the the line started to change to your stuff is on all day in our house, you know, why? <laughs> Thanks, you know. Right. God damn you. Um, and uh, so all that stuff was scary to us. And we wanted to, I mean, our, our collaborators, Jennifer Lee and Chris Buck, who were our, our same collaborators from the first time around, um, approached it really with a, with a great attitude of, we're not going to worry about topping the original. We're not going to, you know, we're just going to tell this story that we want to tell. We're going to do, we're going to do what we did the last time. We're going to follow our noses basically to find this movie. And which is what we did. I think, you know, um, it was, we kept, there was, there was a lot of stuff that, that we didn't know. Um, we didn't know if it would work. And, but our, and we were very nervous about making a musical sequel because there, there are, honestly, there aren't a whole lot of them and not all of them are anybody's favorite. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so we didn't know if it could be done, honestly, if it, we were, we were, we wanted to make sure that whatever story we chose was suited to the idea of a musical sequel and the, the ability to tell a story that we hadn't told before, because how many times can Elsa have this life change, this realization, like what is, what would that be the second time around? That was the, the question, you know, she can't let it go again. Um, what is, you're supposed to, at the end of the musical, the characters are supposed to have changed forever and we're supposed to have found a new, a new harmony. Um, so really what it began to be about was life changes, honestly. It was about the changes that, that as you get older, the changes that confront you in life, which is very similar to, um, uh, you know, what we were all going through. We were all, none of us were young anymore. We were all dealing with, um, with disappointments. We were dealing with complications. We were dealing with all that grown-up stuff that um, that we ended up having, you know, the characters deal with in in Frozen Two, and it, I think in the end we did find a story that was that needed to be told in a way, and it's very different um, from the first film. It's almost a different kind of movie. It's a um, it has a questness to it. There's a mystery to it, and there's a more sort of a deeper psychological. Um, uh, journey that that Elsa goes on. Also, um, she's the protagonist of this movie in a way that she isn't uh, in Frozen One. Frozen One really is really about Anna, Anna's journey, and um, Elsa is the reactive character, whereas Elsa goes on the quest in this one. That's why she gets a she gets an I want song, and she has this this um, song of of epiphany at the end. Um, and it, it gave us a different kind of structure and a different story to tell. And so I'd be curious to know, have you ever had an idea, be it for a musical or a movie that you've ended up not fully writing or not? Oh, tons. I mean, I, I used to, um, I used to, that used to be my MO. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I would, I would start something, I'd get excited about it. And then I'd uh, lose faith in myself. There was one, 
time that I did a master class with a, um, a show I was writing, the show Pamela, that I was writing after college. I, I was adapting that story. I think it's good that I never did um, because, you know, in the end, it's, it's a little bit of a, uh, I don't know, it's a little bit weird of a story. But um, I performed the songs for a, a, an eminent master and, um, and he didn't get it. And I think in a, in a master class, the job of the master is to sort of hold forth on your piece. And, um, and, and so he did. And, and I just put it in a drawer. I was like, no more of this. I'm not, uh, not going to work on this one anymore. It just, it just, I was, there was so much disappointment encoded into the music of that, in that moment that I didn't want to listen to it again. Um, it, it can be very easy to, for me to lose my way on a piece. And I think that's why collaboration is so important for me. Uh, you know, I get anxious, I get, I get down, depressed about something, I lose faith in the material and in myself all the time. But when I'm working with someone, um, it keeps it lighter and it, and very often I benefit from their, their resolve and their stick to and their belief in it. Right. And so the last thing I'd love to talk about is this project that you're currently working on up here is, and what has it been like to change it from a musical to a TV format? And Yeah. Um, this was a, a show that goes back a very long way uh, in our, in our collaboration. It was really, it was an original story, original musical. Um, and it, it began, you know, it was one of those, one of those things that I jotted down because I was very interested in consciousness. Um, I had taken a, you know, computer science class about what, you know, the nature of consciousness, what, what would make a computer's mind different than a, than a person's mind. And what is the world, the experiential world of a person's consciousness? Um, and that was the beginning of the idea. Uh, as Kristen, when Kristen came aboard to help me write it, we were, we were doing all three book music and lyrics together. Um, it became this romantic comedy and because it was about in the end, it was about consciousness and, and existence. It was really about, we chose that it would be about the man. Of course, this was in 2007 um, when, uh, you know, we were still in the age of Judd Apatow um, and, uh, and those kinds of movies. So we, we made it about the world inside this man's mind and uh, the characters that populated it is, you know, the crazy things that represented his his different um, you know the different voices in his head, honestly, and um, and then she was real, you know, and so she couldn't hear anything that they were saying, any of these consciousness characters, um, and he was a he was he had trouble expressing himself. He was a, a you know, introverted guy, and the female character was fully extroverted, fully musical theater, you know, what you see is what you get. Um, type of person, and that's that was what the story was about. Was this romantic comedy between them, and and the existential problem of how do you how do you know? Can you ever know someone? Honestly, it was like, can you can two people ever truly know each other when we are trapped in our own minds uh, and very difficult to really let the other person in and, and even properly communicate how we're feeling, um, and that that became a musical, uh, which we, we brought to La Jolla uh, Playhouse 
and we had a wonderful production there with Alex Timbers as the director. And um, honestly, there were a lot of great things about it, but the whole thing felt like it didn't quite work. And I think a lot of it felt like, well, why don't we see the girl's point of view? Why don't we, what's, why are we just in the man's mind? And it felt, you know, to me, I had this feeling of like, I, I don't like this guy so much because why doesn't he just tell her? Why doesn't he, you know, what, what, why can't he communicate? Um, and uh, it was, it was difficult because we had put so much of ourselves into the characters that it was, I had this real feeling of like, gee, uh, is that me? <laughs> I don't like this. <laughs> I don't like me. Um, neither do any of these people. Um, so we put it on a shelf for a long time because um, it, it felt like a big job to change it properly. Um, and honestly, that, that's where I thought it would stay until the pandemic. Um, we had done a lot of watching of streaming shows. We had seen this wonderful one called Fosse Verdon, um, which was written by Stephen Levinson and um, directed by Tommy Kale. And um, when we saw that, we thought, gee, that's kind of what we wanted to do up here, isn't it? It was like, it uses music as this memory, this, this form of memory and, um, and deep feeling. And, uh, you know, it was more of, a, more of a drama than up here was. Um, but, but there was something in it. It felt, it felt really right to us. And then Tommy came around because nothing was happening in the world of theater. And he said, you know, guys got anything you want to do a, want to do a TV thing with me. And we pitched him on up here and, and Steven as well. Steven already knew we had tried to get Steven the board to make the rewrites for up here before. Uh, so he was already very familiar with the project. And, um, and then we started developing it. Um, and honestly, we threw all of it out. There's very little left. We created a new main character, um, through the two new main characters. One of them still has the same name, but they're really very different than they ever were in the show. And, and a completely different story and a different structure because now we're doing eight episodes and you can only do two or three songs per episode. Um, so, uh, you know, and you have to kind of end on a, a cliffhanger really every every episode. It's all very different than, than um, than a stage musical, but it was, uh, and <laughs> the other thing that's crazy is how fast you have to write it. It was just uh, another breakneck period. After we had spent two years on the, on the pilot, the first two episodes, then we had like a few months to write the rest of it. Um, and it was fun. It was honestly a lot of fun. And to be able to be, you know, part of a, of a TV show, which we had done before, but not never as executive producers, which meant that really you had a lot of responsibility and you got to be there for all the stuff, you know, all the filming and all of the, uh, all the editing um, was kind of our responsibility. And, you know, it was a, it was a wonderful, wonderful learning experience and to get to do it with some of the best of the best was really a treat. Uh, I, th I think um, I I'm really excited to see how people react to it because now it's finally basically done. Um, we've turned in all the episodes and it's really just a matter of like, when will it come out? How will it be marketed? And will people watch it? And uh, I'm very curious to see. I think it's like, it straddles a lot of different tones. It's got a, you know, it's a comedy. It's a half hour comedy, but it's also got a lot of deep, real true emotion in it. And obviously music and it's about 
the world inside your head. It's got sort of like the, the characters from your past are intruding on your present. Um, and, you know, I'm not seeing too much like it uh, in the world out there. So I'm hoping that that counts in our favor if we, you know, if our first attempt is, is uh, you know, if there's anything wrong with it, that at least we get points for being different. <laughs> right. Well, I, I can't wait to see it. And the, um, the very last question I'd love to ask you is, with such a great career in the theater and on screen and all of that, what advice would you give to somebody just starting out? And Well, I, once, I just recently read this, um, my wife was reading um, David Sedaris's diary, and um, and there's a story in it, not from his experience, but just a story he heard of uh, Sinclair Lewis being invited to speak at Wesleyan University, and uh, give give uh, advice to writers. Uh, and so he he came up uh, to the lecture hall and went up to the microphone and said, "So how many of you are interested in writing?" Um, and almost everybody raised their hands, and he said. So go home and write and then just left. <laughs> uh, I think that's good advice. It's really, it's like, it's about doing it. It's, it's really, there's nothing, there's not much you can be told about how to do it. Uh, the other thing is, uh, at least for songwriters in musical theater, I would recommend very strongly to look into the BMI musical theater writing workshop. It's a free class. Um, it is, it has a great track record in producing some of the greatest, um, the greatest teams and and some wonderful work. Um, there would be no Little Shop of Horrors, no Chorus Line, without the BMI Musical Theater Workshop and um, you know Nine and Titanic. Um, all these wonderful shows got developed there, and it's where I where I kind of went for one stop shopping in terms of collaborators, a career, and a, a spouse. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been such an honor and a pleasure to. Oh, thank you so much, Charles. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, yes. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next time for Backstage Babble's 150th episode. I won't give away the surprise of who the guest is, but let's just say she recently had a very big 90th birthday celebration. Trust me when I say you won't want to miss this episode, so make sure to tune back in for that. Happy Tony Week to all those who celebrate, and thanks for listening.